Uh, just so many thoughts going through my head right now. Um, definitely, I think for the first, uh, I always make a joke, the, the first like year and a half of Kyle and I's friendship, I was unaware that we were like in like a friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Very <was> meaningful. Like, <laughs> 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 I had no idea what was going on. And uh, part of that has to do with um, what I'll be talking about tonight uh, and, what, and what, this, uh, what this text is saying to us. Um, you know, so, and I want to say thank you uh, to Kyle for um, putting me in those, into these awkward um, moments in my life because it is truly in those moments where you do grow the most. And I, I, I can remember the first day that I stood up here and I did like the announcements and I was so, like I was shaking and my voice was, I could feel my voice shaking. And then the next time I came up and I gave name to that and I said like I was just really nervous and from there on I don't think they ever got much, too much better, but at least I felt more comfortable after I said that I was nervous. So I'm nervous. So, uh, but it's okay. Um, all right, so let's, let's kind of dig into this a little bit. Um, what I want you guys to do right now is just uh, run through this familiar scenario in your head with me. Uh, you guys are young, you guys are kids, and you're in your room, and you're fighting with a sibling, uh, and, you know, dad walks in, okay, and he kind of comes in on the tail end of an argument and the beginning of a fight, and he stops you guys, and he says, what is going on? What's going on right now? What is all this conflict? Um, and this is something that I'm uh, too familiar with. Uh, being the youngest of three boys, uh, you know, I was just always getting picked on by my older brothers, and they were just, uh, just so terrible to me, and I never did anything wrong. And, uh, and, and, and that is the truth. And I can, I have, I've got facts in my brain to, to, uh, to prove that. Um, and my lovely parents right here would, uh, would, would validate that, right? Yes. Yes. Um, but, you know, so that's the, uh, that's the question that James in chapter 4 is asking to the early Christians uh, in verse 1. He's saying, what is all the conflict right now? What's going on? Okay, and uh, so put yourselves back into the shoes of those kids and uh, just think for a moment. If you're like everybody else, um, it's safe to, su- safe to assume that the answers that you would give to your father would be a little bit less than the truth even if the answer that you gave was a truthful account of what your opinion is, okay? Um, so furthermore, imagine any scenario, uh, maybe, not, maybe not just a fight with somebody on like an external fight, but maybe there's an internal conflict going inside of you. Um, are we 100% telling ourselves the real truth about what's going on? Um, well, James cuts to the thick of things at the end of verse 1, and uh, he says... <clears throat> he asked a rhetorical question uh, that should definitely make us stop and really consider, you know, are we, are we really uh, telling ourselves that 100% truth? He's saying, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? I really like the translation from the message uh, because it's even more forward than that. He says, do you think they just happen? In other words, do you think conflict in your life just happens? Like you're some kind of walking conflict magnet, right? Um, you know, think again, says the message. They come about because you want your own way. And you fight for it deep inside yourselves. So before we dig uh, into that text, or as we say around here, unpack these verses, um, I want to kind of spoil the plot a little bit and get everybody in the same headspace. Uh, Regen, this text is about our social relationships. It's about how we handle every single day conflict but most importantly, it's about my own internal conflicts. 
which create outward conflicts and the inability to move closer to God. When I read James 4, 1 through 10, it's like the old saying, you know, when you point your finger at somebody else, there's three fingers pointing right back at you, okay? And it's, that's the most vivid picture that I can get when I, when I read these words. It's not God's fault. It's not your wife, it's not my wife's fault. It's not my family's fault. It's not your coworkers or your bosses. It's not Kyle's fault. It's mine. And, and, and what these verses are saying is we have to own that. James is telling me that conflict in my life is coming from my selfishness. However, James is not speaking to only one person. Uh, in his letter, he's speaking to all Christians. Therefore, this quality of selfishness is inside each and every one of us. So as wise Christians, uh, it's our responsibility to recognize this about ourselves and handle these moments that we have in our lives uh, graciously. Every day we have countless opportunities to move closer to God. In fact, it's the very first thing that we learned in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. When troubles of, and this is what it says, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity of great joy. You know, and Kyle preached on this, and at first glance when you read that, it's like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, how can, how can these troubles in our lives bring us joy? Well, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Uh, and this is what I was alluding to earlier. Right now, my faith is being tested. I stand in front of everybody uh, super humbled, super nervous. And um, right now, you know, I'm, I'm giving myself a chance to grow through this. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. <clears throat> James says our selfish desires, selfish passions, and jealousies. These are the, uh, when I point at you, those are my three fingers that I refer to as the three fingers of death. All right? So uh, just be careful pointing at people. Uh, fight, they fight within us. And, uh, and what's interesting about them is that they make promises of instant gratification Um, They make promises of uh, success and satisfaction. Uh, But the truth of the matter, James tells us in verses 2 and 3, is despite all of our jealousy, uh, despite all of our selfishness that we display and, you know, all of the stomping on heads to get get above everybody else, we are not getting what we want. It's just just not happening. We are not getting it. Uh, We may be consistently faithful to our selfish motives and do whatever is necessary to see them through. Uh, and by that, by when I say whatever is necessary, I mean that literally. Whatever is necessary to get what we want, human beings have been known to do that. Um, yet we still will not get what we want. We still won't get it. Not only that, but by staying selfish and jealous, we're not showing the true colors of Christian faith. Rather than that, we are holding on to this earthly image of what fulfillment is and losing touch with the image of our eternal fulfillment. So Kyle might say that this may seem, might, that might sound a little conceptual. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe not. Uh, but Jesus taught in Luke 9.24, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. <clears throat> next part, I'm going to personalize this next piece. Um, I admit, I haven't prayed much in my life. And uh, to be honest, I actually said, I think, my first legitimate prayer about like five minutes ago before I stepped up here. Uh, So, (laughs) um, and, you know, 
based off of the text that I was reading, that as I'm reading through James and as I'm learning through uh, the, the, the previous chapters, uh, one of the biggest things that I took from this text in particular, because I was just, uh, you know, studying it like a maniac so I could stand up here and actually sound intelligent, um, <laughs> is that humbling yourselves, even, even through prayer, is important. So um, I, I prayed that I could, um, you know, speak the truth to you guys, uh, because as Kyle said, uh, at one point that teachers get, are going to get judged a little bit more um, strictly than, than people that aren't teaching. So I wanted to make sure I stood up here and I, uh, I'm, I'm giving you guys the words for you guys, not for me, so that I can feel good about what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I did that just a moment ago. Uh, it's working. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but James says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And that's me. So um, I'm being persuaded into believing I can do all these things without him. Uh, selfishness tells me that I don't need the consult. Thanks, but no thanks, God. I can, I can figure all this stuff out without, without you. Um, this tells me, what this tells me is that my faith is about me and it's not about him. But what about people that pray faithfully? Um, James continues, even when you do ask, You don't receive because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Again, the message is helpful because it's a little bit more forward, I believe. And it says you wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to, your spoiled children, each wanting your own way. I would say that prayer is pretty common in a place like this. I think um, you guys would agree. Um, alas, for some, uh, and I'm definitely not pointing any fingers, uh, yeah, the prayers that come out sometimes more closely resemble wishes to a genie rather than something that's going to advance the kingdom of God. Uh, I believe what, what, I, what I learned in this text, I think that's something that we need to be very aware of. Um, this all points back to that internal battle that we have If our thoughts and actions are persuaded by selfish motives, then our prayers will also be tainted as a result. And finally, our thoughts and actions are selfish because our loyalties are divided between what we desire for ourselves and what God desires for us. And in this moment, I'm I'm reminded of a a prayer, or at least part of a prayer that I think everybody is familiar with. And it goes, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I feel like we should, like, do some sort of, like, tag-in kind of thing. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? There we go. So what about us? The, the challenge that these early Christians are facing, when you think about it, isn't all that far away or different from the trouble in our own lives. James is writing to a church that has, like, melted down into nonstop conflict and strife and jealousy. Now, good news. Regen is not that church. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, Otherwise, I would quit and just be done. Um, Seriously, so don't fight each other. But what I love about it is how much this applies to our own life. Verse four, uh, chapter four, verses one and two in the message, again, just say this. He says, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think that they just happen? Think again, they come about because you want your own way and you fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have, and you're willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours, and you'll risk violence to get your hands on it. 
I mean, he, he really uses, like, some really dramatic imagery. I mean, they're fighting. They're trying to get, like, stuff from each other. They're willing to, like, kill to get it. And I feel like we've said this out loud here before. Like, I'm not looking out at you thinking, like, somebody here is a murderer, and I don't know who it is yet, but I'm going to find out. I mean, and so, like, he's talking about killing and murder and violence, and it gets really intense. And so we think, well, maybe that's not us, or the conflicts that we're having aren't that similar. But I think when we look at it again, James is right. We're not just fighting. We're at war. We're not just quarreling. We're not just having a spat. We're at war. We're not just at an impasse. We're at war. And I can't help but wonder if, as James is being extreme in these verses, he's actually pointing to something extremely true. And so you and your spouse might be at war. Now, it might not be like a hot war. It might not be yelling and screaming and throwing, but it might be a cold war. So that's just silence and manipulation and like marital espionage, right? You and your kids might be at war, which if you're an adult parent in the room, like that's scary. See, some of us are new parents in the room, and so when your kids don't do something and you want them to, you just can lay down the card because I said so, right? But then your kids turn like 40, and that doesn't work anymore, right? You can't just keep saying, because I said so. And so you and your kids are in this kind of nonstop cycle of conflict. You and your members of your family might be in just nonstop conflict. You and somebody at work. And so now we start to hear these words of James and saying, well, yeah, I think I do know what it is to be at war. I think I do know what it is to be in conflict. James says that these wars in our life come from desires that are out of order, desires that have been left checked, uh, left unchecked to the point that we will steal or kill to realize those desires. Again, weird. Like, I don't think any of you is sitting here thinking like, I'm going to kill to get this thing that I want from my spouse. Like, I'm intentionally trying to steal from someone at work. But, but think about it again. What happens when you're so frustrated with your spouse and so at war with them that you manipulate and you lie to get your way? You're stealing their power and you're killing your marriage. When you and your boss are so frustrated with each other that you go over her head by carbon copying their supervisor, which happened to me once, and I wanted to toilet paper the person's house, don't do that. We don't, anyway, what happened in that moment is you're stealing your boss's power and you're killing her job. The man who is so angry and so alone in his marriage, who has just totally turned to pornography, is stealing intimacy from his wife and is killing his marriage. I mean, there are more ways to steal and kill than to take someone's stuff and to, like, criminal minds the heck out of them. You know what I'm saying? There are more ways to do that. And so as much as we'd like to distance ourselves from Scripture, I feel like this is something that you and I talk about a lot in the gym often, is as much as we'd like to, like, move ourselves into this, I'm past this, I'm smarter, we live in a more intelligent era, more often than not, Scripture comes alongside and almost too accurately diagnoses us. And James' diagnosis is this, that these quarrels and conflicts and wars at work and at home and maybe even sometimes at church come about because we want our own way and we fight for it deep inside ourselves. And so James says the problem is that our desires and motives are all wrong. Just think about that for a second. Every desire that you have is more often wrong than not. Even your best intentions ought to be questioned. And this sounds weird to us because we live in an era when every one of our desires is self-validating. There was this, do you remember that show, My Strange Addiction? 
Okay, there was like last week a clip going on around that. Oh, hang on a second here. Oh, where did Come back to me. Okay. So there was this clip going on on Facebook from this guy. This guy's strange addiction is being a goat. Yeah. Okay. And what he watching the clip, it's actually kind of heartbreaking. He says out loud, I didn't have any friends until I became a goat. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, because they can't, like, talk back to you. You know what I'm saying? And, and his, I don't, you can't really tell, but he's, like, even done his hair so that it looks like kind of goat, like, horn situations. And his strange addiction is being a goat. And we live in a world where we would say all of our desires are self-validating. So whatever I feel and whatever desire I have, because I have it, it's a good thing. And it shouldn't be questioned. It shouldn't be challenged. Nobody should be going up to goat, dude, as much as we want to and be like, bro, I don't think you should be a goat. I think we might need to check you in somewhere. Something's not okay because that's really what's going on. But what we're supposed to do is kind of applaud that and say, like, good, good job, goat buddy. Like, way to go. We live in a world where all of our desires are self-validating, even desires in our own relationships, we believe, should be self-validating. We believe that when I'm mad at my spouse, when I'm mad at my coworker, when I'm mad at somebody, that my anger is always righteous, I'm always right, and they just need to get on board, because aren't they dumb? I mean, how many of you, when you're in a conflict, really, really quickly rush to, you know, I probably screwed up in about five ways to contribute to this. I don't. I'm all about, no, here's the seven things this stupid person is doing. And if they would just get on board, we wouldn't have this problem. And what James says is that we need to check our desires. James says that we're created for our desires to be filtered and challenged and checked by something, or probably even better, someone greater than ourselves. And so to get out of this cycle of just nonstop conflict, because that's what's going to happen. Zach's language of, an, of a conflict magnet actually far too accurately describes our lives. Because more often than not, it's conflict interrupted by peace, not peace interrupted by conflict. Because we're kind of just trapped in this cycle where our desires are so unchecked that the way we're thinking is just kind of never questioned. And so now I'm mad at everybody all the time, and everybody's mad at me, and now here we are. And so James says the way that we get out of this cycle... The way that we not only solve the quarreling and the fighting and the warring, but also the way that we get our hearts right is by a skill that Zach would call noticing and naming. TM, precision nutrition. Um, it's called noticing and naming. So I want to talk about the noticing part and the naming part is Zach's. Noticing is, where we get, uh, is what we get out of James 4, 4 through 6. James 4 starts off really cheery. You adulterers. Isn't church nice? You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. James is trying to get to the root cause of our conflicts. Whenever, when, I when you take counseling classes, they'll talk about a person's going to walk into your office and they're going to have a presenting issue. This is the same if you're a doctor. They're going to walk into your office, they're going to have a presenting issue. You know, my elbow hurts. And then you kind of start digging into it. You know, I'm kind of stressed out at work. You start digging into it. Well, it's not about work. It's not about the elbow. It's about this other thing inside of them, and it's about how their marriage is falling apart. And so our presenting issue, James says, is our conflicts. The real issue is that our hearts are divided, that our loyalties are divided, that our motives are wrong, and that comes, James says, from spiritual adultery. Boom. I mean, he just, like, lays it out there. This is why we don't like the Bible, right? This is why we like Hallmark cards, 
because there's no you adulterers Hallmark card. You know, birthday for him, birthday for her, anniversary, there's not that section. But James brings the hammer down and accuses us, accuses you, accuses me of spiritual adultery, of divided loyalties is what he calls it in verse 8. He says that these conflicts and our broken desires come from us trying to two-time God. He says that at our hearts, we are all sixth grade girls. We just all like to flirt a little too much. The gospel says that God the Father sent Jesus, and in his dying, a sinless death, in his rising again to new life, What happened was God purchased us for himself. Again, remember Toy Story where Woody the Cowboy has Andy written on the bottom of his foot. We have God's name written. That's who owns us when we step across the line of faith. It's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? He says this, you do not belong to yourself. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a price, so therefore you must honor God with your body. God purchased us with a currency far more valuable than like Benjamin's. He he, he purchased us with the life and death of his very own son. And when he did that, he transferred us from darkness to life. He transferred us from bondage to sin to freedom, from one kingdom to another, from the world, from friendship with the world to friendship with God. When you step across the line of faith, you gotta get this, something fundamental happens about you. It's not just, Zach is sitting up here, not because like I peer pressured him and coerced him, it's something fundamentally different has changed about him, has changed about me at like the very core of our nature when we step across the line of faith. And so James says what happens is we step across the line of faith and God does some stuff in our lives and then we see the world over here. And we just like to kind of hang out over here sometimes, you know, just for a minute and then we run back over. You know, and then we're in a conflict and it's like, you know, I'm trying to be humble, I'm trying to be kind, I'm trying to love people, but you know, it is a lot more fun to just be a jerk. And then we're like, but I shouldn't do that. I just sang that song in church. So I'm going to come over here again. And then we just kind of do this thing. And what James calls this back and forth action in our lives is not just like, you know, you just really need an accountability partner. He doesn't say what you just really need to pray a little harder. He says, no, you, this is spiritual adultery. And so listen to this. Let's, let's get real about this. When you are locked in a conflict with your spouse when you are creating drama at work, when you catastrophize a situation to make it worse, when you assume the worst about people and not the best, when you gossip about someone, when you slander someone, you are committing spiritual adultery. I mean, that's it. That is the problem. And James says these divided loyalties are a big deal because here's why. When I'm part of the way of Jesus, my core belief is that it's not about me. Want to follow Jesus? Rule number one, it's not about you. But I'll tell you what, if I want to just be in the world, you know what rule number one is? It's all about me. And so, of course, I have conflict in my life. If we are all operating as if my comfort, my wish, my desires are the most important, we're going to have conflict. And that comes from spiritual adultery, and God is not okay with that. Look at what happens in verses 5 and 6. This is the message. James says, you're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, there's the word, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. And do you suppose that God doesn't care? Rhetorical question. No, God does very much care. The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover. We're going to sing a song, the opening line, the closing song tonight, the opening line of it is, um, he is jealous for me. 
Like God is jealous toward you. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. James says it's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud, but God gives grace to the humble. James evokes this imagery of love and marriage to express this idea that God is jealous for our affections to be loyal to him and to him only. I was at Zach and Jenna's wedding, and then fun thing I did yesterday, I did two weddings in one day. I like, was like a Vegas wedding chaplain. It was pretty cool. Just kept bringing them in and rolling them out. I do next. I do next. And when, you, when we do weddings, one of the things I ask is I, I say, the vows are, Zachary, will you, take this, will you take this woman to be your wedded wife? Will you love her, honor her, comfort her, and keep her in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others, keep only to her as long as you both shall live. And that is the exact imagery that James evokes when he's talking about adultery. We are breaking our vows to the Lord when we commit this spiritual adultery, when our lives are kind of constantly in conflict. We prove that we really aren't interested in only one. We prove that we are committing spiritual adultery, and God's not okay with that. God gets jealous in this righteous, holy way. And so he's a fiercely jealous lover. The New Living Translation says, don't you know that the spirit he's placed within us, that he is passionate, that the spirit has, he has placed within us be faithful to him. God's desire is for our hearts to be faithful. We have to notice. This is what we have to notice. We have to notice in our conflict that what just your initial thoughts, your knee-jerk reactions, your immediate, this is how I'm going to handle this, is probably wrong. In that fight at work, in your marriage, with your friend, with a family member, what you have to assume is that your initial desire for that conversation is probably wrong. Why? Because we're probably committing some sort of spiritual adultery. Our loyalties are somehow divided. And so the way that we then get out of this is once we've noticed it, we need to name it. So tag your it. get that up in your face. Okay. Um, so here we are with all this conflict in our lives uh, caused by these broken hearts, as Kyle was kind of re- uh, referring to. And to take that um, imagery another step forward, these broken hearts can be likened to a broken compass. Um, so many of us are walking around with these broken compasses uh, going in their own self-validated directions. Because who am I and who are you to tell any of these people uh, that the direction that they're going in is wrong when their compass clearly says, I'm going the right way? Um, you, you, you know, we're nobody. Um, and one thing that I know when it comes to helping people change is that you kind of have to just slowly knock on that door and just slowly kind of prod at them and, and get them to tell you their feelings before you just go busting in the door and saying, James says this, and you're an adulterer. You know, like, no. That's not the way that it's going to go down. Um, So because of this, uh, we're lacking unity, despite the fact that Jesus was sent to to unite us. Um, And as we've been alluding to, uh, to be united, we have to first of all notice that our compass is broken and that it needs some maintenance. Uh, James 4, 1 through 6 has definitely done that. And by now, we should understand that this compass is uh, broken all the time. You know, I was talking with one of my friends uh, last night, and the imagery that came to me, uh, I'm a baseball player. So um, one of the things that, and 
in the, in the baseball world and in practice, it was like always the worst time when the coach said, okay, fly ball communication. If you don't know what fly, fly ball communication is, for whatever reason, it's like the easiest thing to do, it's the easiest thing to get right, but everybody messes it up. It's where the, where the baseball coach stands at home plate and hits the ball as high as he possibly can, and then everybody on the field has to figure out how to communicate and who's, who's going to catch the ball. As you can, humans being humans, it becomes one of the most conflicting times in the simplest of times. Uh, but, you know, so balls drop to the floor and the coaches freak out and break baseball bats and uh, make you run around and it's just, it's just a bad time. Um, the solution to that problem is to, it's kind of like noticing. You've got to step back before we go with our first kind of inclination to just run towards the ball. Um, it's that first, that first idea that we think, okay, the ball's right there. If I run, if I just barge in, I'm going to get there first and everything else will be, will be fine. I'm, I'm right. I'm going to get there first. I'm going to get it. Um, I'll be the star. I'll be the one that's catching it and saving the team. But in reality, the first step that you have to do in these types of situations is step back, take an objective look at what's going on, and then make your move. <clears throat> um, verses 7 through 10 tell us how we're going to fix it. So after we've stepped back and we've taken an objective look, uh, you know, and whether we've made our decision or whether we haven't made our decision yet, uh, we haven't, uh, we're, we're going to uh, know how to fix it here. Uh, James says, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Again, I really enjoy the, the messages from the message. Uh, <laughs> he says, uh, James in, in, in the message says, yell a loud no to the devil. And watch him scamper, say a quiet yes to God, and he will be there in no time. In these verses, James is talking about repentance. And repentance is the best way to describe what it means to uh, call out wrong motives, to name them. Okay? Um, naming can happen after the fact, but it can also happen uh, before and even as, as the action is taking place. We can, yes, we can repent even before we even do something. If we are, if we are so in tune with our, um, with our faith and with our, uh, if we're able to humble ourselves before God and, and, and our brothers and sisters, we can stop, take a step back and say, okay, I'm in the wrong right now. I'm going to stop myself before I make uh, a bigger jerk of myself. Um, and what's beautiful about that, this is a wonderful grace God gives us. Uh, God always gives us a way out of selfishness through repentance and naming at any time. And that's what I mean. You can do it before, during, and after. Every single time you have the choice to say, I was wrong, to say, to humble yourselves. So by giving name to our transgression, we humble ourselves and quietly say yes to God and take a step closer to him. This is the way. That, that is the way that we take step, steps closer to God is we, we continually humble ourselves. Um, and that's, that's how I feel, uh, you know, again, I've had not, I'm definitely pointing the finger at myself here and saying that uh, I think my journey to where I'm standing right, right at this moment, there's plenty of times where I, I'm not, I'm definitely dabbling and I'm being adulterous, but um, I am proud of, the fact, proud of the fact that some of the things that I've done to this point to be able to stand here 
is humbling, and it's the reason I'm standing here right now. Um, as many of you know, uh, naming or calling yourself out for what really is in the presence of God and then other people is a very humbling thing to do, which is what I was uh, getting at. Frankly, by giving name to your brokenness, you're noticing that your crap doesn't always smell like roses. Uh, it means that you are wrong. God is always right. And now he can begin to work his will within you. It's not until we notice that. It's not until we say it out loud, we name it, that he can begin to, you know, work his will within you. Um, it's just that, that we got to get past that stubbornness, that selfishness, that fear. Some images of some humble moments uh, that are going through my mind right now are, uh, for me, are my marriage counseling. When I fought to remain selfish and how that affected my wife. I was literally sitting on Stephanie's and Kyle's couch at marriage counseling, and I said out loud that it, I'm selfish and it's okay. I said that, like the exact words. I'm selfish and, you, and it's okay. I'm allowed to be that way because um, it's going to get me to where I want to be. Um, and that's only a partial truth because it will. It will get you where you want to be, but in, in the long run, um, in, in, in our Christian faith, it's not going to get you anywhere. <clears throat> Uh, my baptism, when I admitted, uh, I'm sorry, my wedding ceremony where I felt like I witnessed what the love of God must feel like because I could barely look up at all the friends and family when Kyle had us face them. Uh, I just remember, I don't remember the, the exact words of the ceremony, but he had us turn around and I looked at everybody out there and I just looked down. I, I, could, I was so humbled by the love of everybody that was just staring at us, the smiles, um, that to me was something that I felt like I, I'd never felt anything like that. And that was a humbling moment to me. And while that might not seem like a conflict on the surface, the reason I felt like that is because I was so hard on the inside that I could never, um, my heart was so hard that I couldn't accept the love around me for what it really was. <clears throat> my baptism, when I admitted that I did not even want God to be mentioned at my wedding ceremony, um, there was a point in my life where that I was searching, I was asking clients and I was asking people what ceremonies are out there that don't mention God. This was less than a year ago, a year and a half ago. Um, you know, so it's, it's humbling to, uh, it's humbling to look back and name how selfish I was there. And just, it's just, it's, it's crazy. <clears throat> and every time I'm given the opportunity to apologize to my wife or anybody, for being in the wrong. That is one of the most humbling things you can do is to say that you're wrong in the most insignificant, um, at the most insignificant seemingly time. Uh, to bring that more to light, uh, to put our uh, marriage moments on blast here. The other day, Jenna's preparing for dinner for a, uh, for, she's preparing for like eight people and my selfish desires because I am so uh, addicted to learning and addicted to, um, you know, mastery and, and wanting to impress you guys and have a knowledge of, of, of Christianity, I felt that it was going to be best for me just to go up to my room and read a book that Kyle gave to me about the Trinity. Um, <laughs> while Jenna's downstairs cutting potatoes and cooking by herself at 1030 at night, and I was just having a great time being in my own world. Uh, and I proceeded to argue and say, like, well, I didn't need your help. And that was a lie. That's a lie. I'm, it's true. It's true, but it's also a lie. It's, I, she didn't ask me for my help, but I blatantly lied 
for my own selfish desires. Um, and this is what creates, and, and I, I think, I, I truly think that if um, I hadn't been reading through James this week and, um, and, she, and we hadn't been coming, it would have been a much worse, much worse marriage moment. Um, so during many of these moments, tears fell and I felt remorse. Uh, all of these moments had at their core either those internal conflicts or an external conflict caused by the internally divided loyalty. Um, but I endured, and all of those experiences ended with me feeling humbled and led to me standing right here in this spot. So I'm grateful for that. I think Zach kind of made a really good point that kind of closes this out, that um, at all of those moments, you didn't say this out loud, so I'll say it for you. At all of those moments, there were tears in Zach's eyes. So front row seat at wedding, front row seat at baptism, front row is it me that makes you cry? Because there's actually that common denominator. I'm there all, the, all of those moments. Okay, I'll go over here. Okay. Um, uh, marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, I was right there. Um, there were tears, and I love that that's what James says. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter. Let there be gloom instead of joy. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. I love this idea of naming of when, I once had somebody say to me, when you sin, you need to immediately tell the Lord. Like, you need to just keep short accounts with him. That's what humility is. Not because, like, if I don't get it all out there, like, this thunderbolt is going to come and God won't love me anymore. No, but there's something about humility that says, when I step outside the boundary, I just say right away, God, I didn't do that right. Um, in our marriage and, and in any relationship, saying to someone, I'm sorry that I did blank. Not, by the way, I'm sorry that I did blank, but if you take nothing else from me tonight, hear this, hold your butts really hard, okay? You don't say I'm sorry, but you just say I'm sorry. All of those have an effective dimension, but I love this idea of humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is why James ties that in because I think a lot of our conflicts are about us trying to lift ourselves up. And what's super interesting is that God has no problem with giving you that. He just wants to give it to you in his way and his timing. God has no problem with you kind of getting to the goal that you foresee, that you see in your mind. He just wants you to do it your way. So we can either, we can lift ourselves up to do that. We can take control. We can lift ourselves up. We can be prideful. We can be puffy. But then the text says that God opposes the proud. Or we can humble ourselves in the midst of a conflict and all of these things, say, okay, I'm just going to back off. I'm going to name how I'm selfishly approaching this. And the gospel says that he will lift us up. And so uh, I guess our challenge together would be to humble yourselves and to check your motives and to uh, draw close to God. Let me pray and then we'll take communion. Hey, Jesus, um, yeah, I, I think in the spirit of naming, I just want to give us like 30 silent seconds to just name that. To name the ways that we've lived outside the bounds.
Father, we're thankful that, the, that James says that when we draw near to you in humility, you draw near to us. And so, Father, for those ways that we're living outside the bounds in any number of ways, the ways that we're dabbling and flirting back and forth across this line, that we're being adulterous, we're sorry. And we just need your grace uh, to be humble and to walk the way that you have for us. And so, Father, would you show us the next step super clearly, even if it's a step we don't like, and help us to take it with your grace. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.